hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're gonna make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new, real-life stories of hope and triumph, told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... Hello, my name is Raymond Weiss. I am from Mississippi. My clean date is 10-26-2015. I was born addicted to Dilatas. Um, I had lots of medical problems growing up. I've had 120 to 160 major operations, um, kidney removed, bladder reconstructive surgery, colostomies. Um, so pretty much a lot of my childhood was spent in the hospital up until second grade. Um, I was born into a drug addict mother and father. Thank God for my grandparents because they gave me the, the better side of life to show me, to teach me right from wrong. I got introduced to marijuana when I was seven. My dad thought it would be a good birthday present since I liked the way it smelled. And that started my addiction at 10 years old. I started doing crystal meth. My mother gave me my first line of crystal meth to help me with some tests that I wasn't I weren't gonna do good with. She said it would help me to remember everything. It was our secret potion and that was when the downhill spiral started. I never fit in because I didn't know how to get along with kids because like I said, I was in the hospital a lot. Um, the marijuana made me relax some around kids and the crystal meth completely had the opposite effect on me. It started making me paranoid thinking everyone was against me. Um, the teachers, the students, Everything but my pets. I knew my pets didn't know what was going on. So as a kid, really my dog was my best friend. And my buddy David, he, um, he was an Air Force brat and he was completely opposite of me. His parents drank, but they weren't drug addicts or anything. So my childhood from then on was pretty hectic. I started manufacturing crystal meth at 13, which really made me feel crazy because um, I thought it was our secret potion. Um, at about 16, I, they started D.A.R.E., the drug thing for school, and I heard the people on TV talking about eight balls, and they had the pipes, they showed the crystal meth pipes, and I knew right then that I was doing drugs. It wasn't, it wasn't a secret potion that I was a drug addict, but by then it was too late. Through puberty, it, it kind of messed with my head, all the hormones going crazy, and then and then thinking everyone was against you, it was, it was pretty messed up. When I found out that I was a drug addict, that it, was, it wasn't our secret potion, and that other people did do it too, a little bit, is when I started doing it a whole lot more. I was never allowed to play sports because of my medical problems. I, didn't, I wasn't allowed to play football because of my one kidney. Um, I was made fun of some because I was kind of weird. I was always very paranoid about people. I was funny, you know I mean? I, I used my my wit to get through to other people. Um, toward around 11th grade, I met a girl, and she was a little, a little rich girl. 
She didn't know anything about drugs or alcohol. Um, so I slacked off some. I didn't really start drinking until I was around 19 to 21 because it was illegal. I couldn't quit the drugs. I was already there. Um, my mom did it. My dad did it. She was a crystal meth addict, um, IV user. My dad smoked crack, weed, acid, all those things. So I really didn't know anything else but that until I went to my friend David's house. When I went to his house, it was normal. But normal didn't feel right to me. I liked, to, I, liked I guess, set myself up for failure. You know what I mean? I liked doing all the things that I knew something bad would come out of because I never knew what good felt like. I quit high school like a semester before I graduated because my dad had a construction company. I knew that's what I was going to do anyway. Um, and then my grandmother told me that she would pay me to go to any school I wanted to go to, that construction wasn't my life. So I went to the University of Nebraska. I was going to get a master's degree in evolutionary biology. Um, end up quitting it. I was on drugs then too. I never really quit meth. I mean, it was since I learned that meth made me remember, made everything. I didn't care about the paranoidism. I didn't care about relationships. I didn't care about friendships. All I cared about was when I was on meth, I thought I was doing good in school. Even though the teachers were after me, when I seen that I did had a good grade, I knew that the, the drug was on my side, which was all my addiction lying to me the whole time. I worked nonstop. Um, seven days a week, 12 hours a day most of the time. I worked to do drugs and I did drugs to work. It was a vicious cycle. I like being, since my childhood wasn't that good, I like being not necessarily better than everybody else, but I like to outdo. I don't want someone to be better than me. And the meth helped me. It's like steroid users do that to be better in sports. I did meth because I can outwork anyone. And um, it was, again, a vicious cycle of work to do it, do it to work. If I didn't stay up for seven or eight days, I wasn't happy. I liked getting paranoid at that point in time because it took away the the, th the thought of people being after me, and then I could start looking for the things in the bushes, all the things that my mind would play tricks on me from sleep deprivation. Um, my mother, I, and my sister had a beachfront properties in Biloxi, um, and we all lost our house during Hurricane Katrina. We all sold our land to condo developers. Um, and my mom decided she wanted total body reconstructive surgery. She's a beautiful lady, but she just thought she needed all that. So they did a bunch of blood tests and all those things for her, for her and she found out she had hepatitis C. And kind of started going downhill for about two or three months. Then she lost her nursing license. Um, she says for three fake drug tests at the time that they were lying. But after she got sober, she, she confessed to it. She told me that she was on it still. And... Um, so she quit the drugs, well she quit drinking to help her liver. And then she started going through the treatment. It was like a six month treatment to get rid of it then. Um, and then she decided that when she wasn't drinking as much, she didn't want to do the meth as much. So she completely, to get her license back, she completely went cold turkey on everything. Cigarettes, alcohol, meth, pills. Um, and that's when mine and her relationship started falling apart more because in my head at the time, I forgot where she, she thinks, she forgot where she came from is what I thought. She forgot that what she used to be and what she made me. Because if it wasn't for her, I never would have did the drugs. So I held a lot of resentment toward her. I, had a, I held a lot of resentment because she shot up dope when she was pregnant with me. All my medical problems happened, all that. I didn't have a chance um, because of her. 
now that I'm sober, I, for, I, I forgave her because in her act of addiction, she did everything she could for me. Um, a lot of people couldn't have loved me as much as she did. I didn't think she loved me then, but now that I'm sober and clean, I realize that she did the, in act of addiction, she did the best she could for me. A year to the date before I came to rehab, I worked a year straight, seven, seven days a week, 16 hours a day. Um, I took two days off from October of 2014 to October 2015. I only took two days off. And I realized that the women I had in my life, um, I had a thing for strippers. I guess you date at your self-esteem level, and I thought that's all I deserved. Um, I was going to work when no one else was showing up. My boss would be like, why are you, why are you showing up to work? Because I called him asking for the key to the gate. Um, I, could, I didn't have any friends. All I cared about was working and doing drugs. The last two years of my addiction, I never really even got high. I just stayed awake. I mean, I could do as much as you wanted me to do, as much as I wanted to do, and it still wasn't enough to get me high. It wasn't feeling good anymore. I was just staying awake and then miserable because I stayed awake and was having to do more and more and more. And um, I was sitting, I always stayed in the worst hotels because I knew my bosses and stuff would not come there. And it was cheaper, so I had more money to spend on drugs. Um, and I showed up for work one day I'd been up for probably three or four days, and my boss was like, you need to get some sleep. I said, I, I do sleep. And then we got, a, we got in a little argument, and I left. I walked off the job. I went straight to the dope girls. I always bought drugs from girls because I felt like I was supporting them. I never bought drugs from a man because I figured they could work a real job. And when my dope dealer told me, I thank you for the money you've been giving me, but you got a problem. I said, you don't know me. You don't understand me. I got in an argument with my dope girl. I bought a quarter ounce of meth. I went home and started making a bunch of rigs. Um, I didn't want track marks, so I never shot off my arms or toes. I used to directly inject it into my tear duct. And I was sitting there with looking in the mirror with a needle fixed to go right beside my eye. And I was like, if someone knocked on the door or anything, if I turned my head, I would poke my eye out and I had to go the rest of my life knowing that I don't have an eyeball because I was trying to shoot up. And I called my mother and I was like, I need to, I need help, I need to go to rehab. My shovel won't dig any deeper and the ladder I got is too short to climb out. I don't know what else to do. My sister lives in San Antonio. I was down in Yorktown, Texas and I called her and I was like, where are you at? She's like, I'm at your sister's, which I didn't know because I didn't talk to my mom or my sister. And it was only like an hour and a half away so it was weird that that time happened and she was already there close to me. She's like, Raymond, something told me to come to Texas to visit your sister and I was gonna come find out where you were. So she came and picked me up. Well, she came down there and I followed her, her, her and my sister home to San Antonio. I called American Addiction Centers, talked to a woman named Miss, Miss Emily. I think she's in Illinois. And she sounded like the coolest girl in the world. She sounded like a snowboarding girl. And she was an addict. And she told me that if she can do it, I can do it. And I listened to her because it wasn't my mother telling me because she wanted me to get better because of her own personal reasons, I thought. It wasn't my grandma trying to tell me. It wasn't me trying to get clean to try to make people happy. She told me exactly what I needed to hear. Um, I drove home to Mississippi, and I was home for 20 minutes, and Miss Emily called me back. And she's like, well, I got good news. I was like, what is it? And she told me that I was leaving that day. Now, be it, I haven't been home in a year, so I was upset. I hung up on her. I was like, these people don't understand haven't been home, I want to see my sister, I want to see my family before I go. She called back, she's like, 
we got you a place in San Diego. And I, I cursed at her, told her I didn't want to go. Um, I went and got more dope. Just in case I did leave, I could be high when I went there. Um, and I said, I'm not going to Las Vegas. I said, I go to North Mississippi in two weeks. And I hung the phone up on her again. I mean, it was San Diego. She said, I'm not going. I said, I'm not going to San Diego. She called me back. And she's like, we have you a place in Vegas. You don't have to go to San Diego. Would you go to Vegas? I was like, yes, in two weeks. And she straight up lied to me in the best way I've ever had. She said, Raymond, you wouldn't believe how expensive the tickets are in two weeks. But today we got you the cheapest ticket we can get. You have to go. And I broke down crying. I let my addiction slip away for a second, and the real me came too, and I said, okay, I'll leave. And then two hours later, I was on a plane flying here to Desert Hope. I was super nervous. I thought it was going to be, let me go back a little bit. I went to an IOP um, for alcohol three years prior to coming to this. I never got off the meth, but I went for the girl that I was dating, um, and 37 days later, I relapsed. When I got out, I was trying to make 90 meetings in 90 days. I didn't make it but seven days, but I was doing everything they told me to do, and she hated me sober. I think what it was, we didn't spend a lot of time together anyway because I worked, but she said I didn't like to fight. I didn't like to do the three Fs. And, um, and one day I came home, and she had a pint of vodka sitting on the table, and she's like, if you don't get drunk, I don't want to be with you no more. So I did the best thing I knew what to do. I picked up the vodka, and I started drinking. Um, went and got me two more pints. Um... I beat the brand new truck I bought her to pieces, tore all the pictures off the wall, and I left. So on the way here, the flight here to Desert Hope, I thought it was going to be like a prison, like they were talking about at the IOP that I'd went to, that they rehab. Um, I was nervous. I cried. There was an old lady sitting next to me, so it was good. I didn't feel so guilty about crying. She just put her little arm around me, little wrinkly arm, and she just told me to cry, and it was going to be okay. Her grandsons had, had went to rehab, and it was good. She she kind of made me feel at peace about what I was coming to because I didn't do any research on it. I got on a plane, and I left. I showed up to the airport, and um, Mr. Mr. Jesse from Desert Hope picked me up, and he was an ex-meth addict, and he just kept telling me I can do it. It completely gave me at peace. The vehicle was nice. They picked me up in. It wasn't like some cop car looking thing. It was a nice. It was a nice van. So instantly, it was. I started feeling at peace. And then when we pulled up to Desert Hope. It wasn't a prison. It was a beautiful building. Um, I walked in. It was probably twelve o'clock in the morning. Started talking to the nurse. Everyone was really just. It wasn't like the rehab that I thought it was going to be. I started crying with joy because I knew. At that point, no matter how hard it is, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a good place. I'm in a very good place. Um, I went to sleep, and when I woke up, they took my intake picture, which I still have with me. It makes me realize what I looked like then and what I don't want to look like now. But um, it was a scary trip up until that point. Until I walked, until Mr. Jesse put me up, it was a, it was terrifying. But it was all it was all in my head. It was my addiction telling me everything I could to get in the airport and turn around and leave. When I got there, they handed me a little piece of paper with a map on it, told me where the classes was, and I was nervous because I was used to getting in my machine at work, digging, 
on a track hoe and coming home. It was a complete opposite. It was complete opposite of what I was used to doing. I met a guy named Jonathan. We was eating breakfast and um, he showed me around, and it was it was good. I refused the medicine. My hard headedness said, "Listen, I've came off meth a hundred times. There's nothing to make you better off meth." What drove me crazy was not taking the Librium to come off alcohol. My blood pressure shot sky high. I was hearing and seeing things. I thought I was going crazy. So the first week, I wanted to leave, but all I kept telling myself is what Jonathan told me. When you're here, surround yourself with winners. Winners win, losers lose. And I'm not a loser, even though I did drugs and all that stuff. Everything I do, I'm good at. So I stuck with it. And from that point on, it was, I like to say, almost a heaven on earth. It was the most amazing decision, amazing time that I've ever had. You got the good people and you got the bad people. Every one of us suffer from the same problem. So I just stuck with the winners. The people that didn't want to be there, I didn't hang out with them because negativity flows. It's like a BHT told me. He said, you can get a 55-gallon drum, and when you, the negativity is like when you drop a brick in it. It flows like a, flows like that. Positivity only flows like you drop a pebble, but that pebble still makes ripples. So I hung out with the little pebbles of positivity. That's what I told myself. The classes teach you step-by-step step of what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, and if you do what you're not supposed to do, how to step back into what you're supposed to do again. Um, they taught me that I've got to admit that I was at fault for everything that I've ever did. Whether it was my fault or not, if I can take the blame, then I can make the decision to get better. Which is hard because a lot of addicts and alcoholics, me personally, I want to put the blame on everyone else, even God. I found my higher power there. I had a roommate a UPS driver named Tyler, he had never seen drugs. So we didn't get along with the first day or so because I didn't think he knew me, anything about me. But come to find out, he helped me find my higher power, um, which helped me out tremendously because without that, you really, you don't have anyone to turn to. I always had God so I can blame him when things went wrong, but I didn't thank him when things got went right. So, um, so the, to find my higher power, to let go of my resentments, to let go of the hate that I thought I had toward people, to take complete responsibility for what I did. It wasn't my fault that I started doing drugs. It was my fault that once I knew I had a problem, I didn't get help. I just wanted to keep blaming everyone else. And the more I blamed people, the more I pushed them away, the more I pushed them away, the more I went inside myself, and the more I went inside myself, the more drugs I did, which is a nonstop cycle that I didn't realize was a cycle. I seen something posted the other day that said, I didn't realize how sick I was until I started getting better. And now that I'm starting to get better, I realize how sick I am. And now that I realize it's not curable, but I can fix it each day I get better, it's easier and easier every day. I'd come far enough along that I've realized that I need more than this. I suffer from a 26 year drug addiction, 30 years counting the marijuana, but a 26 year meth addiction and I wasn't gonna get better in 30 days. My addiction told me every day, you got this, you got this, you got this, Raymond. But I was strong enough to talk to myself inside in my own voice, not my mean addiction voice, that Raymond, you do not have this, you're not ready. Because all it wants me to do is go out and fail again, go out and relapse, go out and do all the things that I don't wanna do. But having the tools that Desert Hope taught me, I realized that you do have an addictive voice you do have your real voice and you have the voice of your higher power.
and those two combined can push your addiction voice out of the way if you wanted to. Um, after 30 days, I asked for another 30 days. Um, and it's not a freedom lifestyle. You have, you, but you're taught structure, you're taught respect, you're taught all the things that you need to learn through life that people think they know anyway. Um, and I wanted to go back home. I wanted to do all the things that, that normal people want to do. But if I would have did that, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I would be relapsed. I would be back in a hole that I couldn't get out of. I knew that the longer I stayed, the better I got, the better chance I had of getting better. And, and my higher power voice and my voice inside my head told me that's the only way to do it is to keep staying. I mean, yes, you do have to wake up and go to classes. Yes, you do have to hear some things over in a repetitive form, but the repetitive form is what gets it in your head. Um, you don't learn how to walk by just stepping up and walking. You have to keep falling, then you learn how to walk. It's the same concept. When I found out that I was going to intensive outpatient, I was scareder than I was to go into the real rehab because I had complete structure there. I had my routine. I'm a routine kind of person. Um, all of my friends, um, Gut 319, Tyler, Mr. John, they had all left. I thought they'd went home. I couldn't get in touch with them, you know what I mean? We're not allowed to, you know, I have our phones and stuff like that. But the trip, maybe it's a two mile trip to IOP, was the most nervous I think I've ever been. It's like I was going to the dentist with the, getting my teeth pulled out. And then I walked in and I seen all my friends there. And they looked at me and they just smiled. And I knew right then that this was the best decision I ever made. Um, you have more freedom at the same time it's not a freedom that you want to 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 do wrong with because you've already learned me personally I learned what I needed to do and what I needed to do um, you have different you have a different schedule a different therapist um, my therapist Mr. David here Miss Gina at the other at the main compound I love those people to death it took a lot for me to sit down and and let someone else tell me what was wrong with me and me break down and cry, get angry or mad, and then keep the same face and smile and say it's okay. Um, IOP was really good. Um, you have a bigger group session. You learn that it's okay to trust people. Again, it, that's a real problem for me is trusting someone because I always know that they're out to get me. Even in my sobriety, I still look at people and think they're out to get me. Then I tell myself in my head, no, that's not them. It's your own, it's your addiction, trying to make you, trying to find some excuse to make you, to make you go back to do what you don't want to do. It's fun at IOP. Um, fun in a good way. I mean, you, you do your things, but you get to, to mingle with people. Me personally, I don't believe in the fraternization, but at least there's, there was women here to have the softer side. You hear a woman's story. Um, you get to be more in a normal life. Um, it's kind of like a normal life, but with structure and it's a safety. It's like a nest for me. That's another reason I kind of wanted to stay because it was a nest. I knew that once I got out, it would be, it would be hard. Um, my last day, I. I was really sad because I, I knew that I was going to try to come back to Vegas. My dreams to finally to one day work for y'all um, to help other addicts and alcoholics because that's all I've ever known. And now that I'm sober, 
I can help people. That's that's all they've ever known. So we got coined out. I was really sad. Um, wanted to stay longer. Insurance wouldn't do it. Um, getting dropped off the airport was like super hard for me because I was leaving my nest and went home. Life hit. I had people that I thought loved me. Um, offered me the drugs to drink. They had a going away party. I mean, a coming home party for me. They had all the things I used to do, but I had it in my heart and in my mind and in my tool belt set that I don't need to be around these people. So I stayed at the party to not be disrespectful. And all I did was play with my little sister. I'm 32 years older than my little sister. So we played and, and she told me when I told her I was moving back to Vegas cause I'm, I'm getting trained to manage a sober living house now. I'm doing nothing but sobriety, which is, which is, I got to chase this sobriety like I chase drugs, and that was pretty hard. So I chased the sobriety just as hard as possible till my feet hurt. Then I changed shoes and I keep chasing. But my little sister, I told her that um, that I was going back to Vegas. She called. She thinks I'm lost in Vegas. She don't understand that it's Las Vegas. Um, she asked why I didn't come see her and stuff the whole time I was home, and I told her I said, listen. Your daddy's a good daddy. It's our daddy. I said, our daddy's a good daddy, but our daddy drinks beer and our daddy smokes cigarettes, which is a joint. Um, I said, Bubba, don't do that anymore. So Bubba can't be around you. Be around him. I said, Bubba loves you. I hadn't forgot about you. And she looked me in my eyes and said, Bubba, you're my hero for not drinking. And I broke down out of happiness because she'll never remember. She's She's young enough. She'll never remember the person that I was. She'll only see the person that I've become. And I'm hoping that'll keep her away from, from the alcohol and drugs, because um, she lives with an alcoholic father. Now he's not abusive. He's not a bad person. He's just a, an old hippie guy. But still, he's not. It's the same lifestyle that I was growing up in. So now that now at least she'll have someone to look up to. I'm the oldest of ten. Two of them's not addicted. Oh, three of them's not addicted. The rest of us are. They're all alcoholics. I'm the only drug addict. Me and my the one year brother under me. Um, but to know that that Desert Hope has helped me become the person I am today, so grateful for Mr. David, my therapist, for Miss Gina, my therapist at the other place, for the people I've met here. Because um, you meet real friends. I never had the friends that I thought it was drug friends. They wanted me when the drugs were around. They wanted me when I got my paycheck. They wanted me for all the wrong things. Now I have friends that have my back, and I have their back. I have people that I can say I love. I can actually miss people now. It's a bad feeling to have. I'm sad when I miss people, but I've never missed anyone before. I was trying to find somebody to fill that void inside myself. Now that hole's getting filled up with sobriety, with love, with peace, with happiness, my higher power. All these things have happened because of Desert Hope. And um, it's the most amazing thing that I've ever felt before. It's like I, when I was leaving, I was nervous that I was just I was gone and Desert Hope would forget about me. Um, but they didn't. The alumni coordinator, Mr. Chris, I called him more times in my eyes than I should have. He never, he never didn't call me back. He always called me back. Um, gave me great advice. Um, any point in time that I needed something, because people would call me asking me how they can do something, and I didn't know because I'm only just now sober. So he would tell me um, what I did, what I should do, um, 
which was a lot of help because, again, I wasn't left out alone. They started me, they helped me get through it, and now they're with me in the journey. At home, the only thing I knew what to do is go to meetings nonstop. I tried to make three a day, but meetings were like an hour and 15 minutes from me. So I would show up to a meeting, um, the meeting would get over, and I would sit there and wait for another meeting to start. It's like I used to make fun of my mother because she was meetings of this, meetings of that. I, I feel bad when I don't go to meetings. Like it was her medicine. And um, I used to think she was weird, but I realized that it was a good kind of weird because now I'm that person. I love to go to meetings. That's why I love Vegas. Vegas has, I think, like 900 meetings a week, 24-7. If you want to go to a meeting, there's always a meeting to go to. Where I was from, like I said, I had to drive almost two and a half hours a day to get there. So I would sit and wait. Um, I talked to other addicts. There's there's five of my buddies that, like I said, Nandine, Mr. John, Tyler, um, and Mason, and Guthrie. We all, we all have a like a group chat we talk to each other and text each other and it's like we're we're our support group when no one else answers and not like someone else don't answer because they don't want to but people have lives you know what I mean so to have a you got to have a support system you, you have to do the things they tell you it's a simple program it's hard to start but once you start for me personally it's it's a very simple program there's 12 steps and there's 12 traditions and if you can do those things, it's easy. Finding a sponsor was very important to me. Every meeting I've, I've been to, I've learned something. And it's funny because the worst meeting I've ever been to, um, I found my sponsor. And I called him nonstop. When I, he's from Vegas. I called him nonstop in Mississippi. Um, and he never, sometimes he wouldn't answer, and I thought that he didn't want to talk. But he, you know, like I said, he had a life too. He has to work and all those things. But to find my sponsor and to start working the steps, um, was an absolute amazing thing for me. Especially, people are so scared. I say people as in me, and I've heard other addicts now call us talk about step four, because you have to talk about all the horrible, bad, nasty, dirty, all the things that only you know about sometimes to someone else, write it down and tell them someone else. And my sponsor told me, you've already did them, what's the problem? He said, the problem is you're being lazy and don't want to tell me about them, and, don't want to, and this is true. Um, but to go through the steps, um, I'm halfway through step four, halfway through step five, and then I'm going back to step four and I'm doing the other half of my life and gonna read it to him. But to do these things makes me feel really good inside because it's the only way. If sponsorship and steps and meetings, sponsorship, steps and meeting, that needs to be a complete part of your life. Me personally it does because without a sponsor, I'm not working the steps. Without working the steps, I'm not gonna to go to the meetings. When I don't go to meetings, I'm gonna relapse. And that's not what I want. Um, this life is so wonderful now. Um, I wake up every day happy. I thank God. I go to sleep every night and I humble myself and I get on my knees and thank you for everything that they've showed me. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to change the pain that I've had. Um, but I definitely know I'll never go back. All I have to do is just for today look forward for another beautiful day.